Well, we are continuing together our study in our confession of faith, and we're, of course, on the very last chapter, the chapter 32, dealing with the subject of the last judgment. Um, Gary, do you have a confession with you? Okay, we've got, we've got extra ones if you don't. Okay, good. All right. So we're in chapter 32, which is the very last chapter on page 41. And we're dealing with the subject of the last judgment. Now, last time, <clears throat> we completed together our study of paragraph one. And paragraph one, of course, deals with the certainty of the day of judgment. God has appointed a day. And so there is a specific day. <clears throat> Excuse me. There is a certain day and a fixed day. And that day is coming. And the paragraph dealt with the one who is sitting in judgment, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. It dealt with the persons who are going to be judged, the apostate angels, and all persons who have lived upon the earth. And then it talked about the process of judgment, that the works of all people will be examined as to their thoughts, words, and deeds, and then they will receive their just due according to their works. And so we see that the works of humanity, the works of people, demonstrate whether or not they had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, whether or not they were saved, whether or not they were Christians. And we see that Christians, as to the dominating characteristic of their life, obey the law of God, they keep the word of God, and they do the will of God. Unbelievers, on the other hand, the dominating characteristic of their life, or I should say the total characteristic of their life, is that they live in sin and they carry out sin. All that they do is sin because everything they do proceeds out of a corrupt fallen nature which pollutes all of their works with sin and they do not do their work for the glory of God, but rather they do it for the glory of self. And so we see then <clears throat> that the righteous appear before God on the day of judgment without any sins imputed to them because those were all imputed to Christ on the cross and they are removed as far away from them as the east is from the west. God says he has buried them in the depths of the sea. He says he's blotted them out as a thick cloud. And so our sins will never be brought up to us on the day of judgment because they were brought up to Christ on the cross and he fully expiated them. He fully uh, cleansed them. And so um, God will only mention our good works, our acts of obedience to him and our sins uh, will be seen and heard from no more. And so for us as Christians, we look forward to the day of judgment in which Christ will present us faultless before his father with exceeding joy. It says that he will present us holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight in Colossians chapter 1. And so we look forward to entering into the joy of the Lord. We look forward to um, eternal life. And so for us, the day of judgment is something we anticipate with great enthusiasm and delight uh, because it is there that we will receive the fullness of the salvation that Jesus purchased for us. The wicked, on the other hand, have nothing to look forward to but condemnation and judgment and dread and wrath. 
And so for them, it is a dreadful day. All right. Well, that leads us then to the second paragraph, which we will begin to study together today. And that is the purpose of the day of judgment. We saw the certainty of the day of judgment in paragraph one. Now today, the purpose of the day of judgment in paragraph two. Um, Notice the first few words, the end of God's appointing this day is. Now this word, the end, can mean also uh, convey the idea that this, the purpose of this day of judgment. So the question is, why have a day of judgment? What is its purpose? And uh, this paragraph, first of all, describes what the purpose is, and then it describes the purpose and how it's accomplished. And so we see the purpose described and then the purpose accomplished. So notice then, first of all, the purpose described. It says, the end of God's appointing this day, now here's the purpose described, is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. So the purpose of the day of judgment is to display to the universe and all created moral beings the attributes of God. And in particular, with reference to the righteous, his mercy is going to be displayed. And in particular, with reference to the wicked, his justice is going to be displayed. And so what we see about God is that he is both merciful and just at the same time. And we uh, do not want to emphasize one of those attributes at the expense of the other. Now, uh, in our day and age, what you hear a lot about is God is love, God loves you. Well, it's true that God is love. That's actually a quote right out of the Bible. And it's also true that God loves his people. He loves his people very much. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so, yes, it's true that God is loving, but it's like that's where they stop. But we have to also understand that God is just and God is righteous and God is holy. And therefore, God is absolutely inflexible in terms of the demands of his justice with reference to the keeping of his laws. And so the great question of the Bible is how can God be merciful and just at the same time? In the words of Romans chapter 3, how can God be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus? We're sinners. How can God justify us and be righteous? That's the big conundrum of the gospel. And of course, Jesus Christ is the solution to that great conundrum. God can be just and at the same time justify sinners by imputing their sins to Jesus. He satisfies all the claims of the law with reference to justice for the violation of that law by punishing our sins in our substitute. And so Jesus bore the wrath of God and Jesus bore the penalty of uh, the wages of sin, which is death in his own person 
so that we might not have to do so in our persons. So the purpose described here is that there would be a manifestation, an unveiling, a showing forth, a visible representation of the mercy of God and that those who are given everlasting life are no less sinners than those who are sent to everlasting punishment. But God showed His mercy to those who go into everlasting life in that He provided redemption for them. And those who go into everlasting uh, judgment, eternal damnation, are judged for their wickedness, they are judged for their disobedience, they did not receive Christ as their Savior, they did not trust in God's means of redemption, and so they are justly condemned uh, to hell. Now, let's look at some passages of Scripture. In particular, turn to Romans chapter 9. The book of Romans, the ninth chapter. In Romans chapter 9, we have an extended explanation of the sovereignty of God in choosing out of the fallen mass of humanity those whom He will save, and also of His determination to uh, bypass others and allow them uh, to go on in their sins and receive the just condemnation of those sins. And so, uh, I don't want to take the time this morning to do an extended explanation and exegesis of Romans 9. That's all been done not too long ago as we preached through this passage. It's all on tape. And if you have questions about it, I invite you just to listen to the tapes on Romans chapter 9. But he says in verse 22 to verse 24, in describing the prerogative God prerogative of God to save whom he wills and to not save whom he wills. Notice um, the motives here that are, are offered. Romans 9.22 What if God, willing to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he has afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now, notice the thrust of verse 22 and 23, and that is in both verses, God is making something known. Verse 22 He wants to make His power known. Verse 23, He wants to make known the riches of His glory. One of the purposes of God in creation is revelation. It's the revealing of His person, His character, His nature, and His attributes to the watching moral universe. And one of the ways... I would say the primary way in which God does that is in His work of salvation and in His work of judgment. 
These are his two great works that he does. And by them, he reveals the full um, dimensions of his character and of his nature. And so <clears throat> what we have is we have Adam and Eve. <clears throat> excuse me. We have Adam and Eve falling into sin. And uh, all of their offspring were also sinful because they inherited that sinful nature from Adam. And Adam's sin was imputed to them because he was their representative, their federal head. <clears throat> and out of this mass of fallen humanity, God could have justly taken all of humanity because they were all sinners and sent them all to hell and thus displayed His power, His justice, His holiness, and His righteousness. But there is a whole group of attributes and characteristics of God that would have been left undisplayed. Namely, His love, His mercy, His kindness, His grace, and His patience. And so God then devised a method of salvation. And out of that mass of fallen humanity, he elected certain individuals to become saved. And those that he chose to save, he sent his son to die to redeem them from their sins. And he sent his spirit then to draw them to himself, regenerate their hearts, and bring them to repentance of sin and to faith in Jesus Christ. And to that group, he is displaying his love and his mercy and his grace and his kindness and his patience and all of those attributes that we find so uh, delightful and comforting to us in terms of the blessing they bring into our lives as redeemed sinners. <clears throat> So we have these two groups of people. We have this, this, this mass of humanity that is justly condemned for their own sins. And then we have this smaller group of God's elect who on the basis of God's grace, I don't know if that's going to make any difference or not, but we'll give it a try. <clears throat> on the basis of God's grace, um, are, are, are saved. So notice our verse then. Verse 22, what if God, and he's defending God here in, in his divine sovereign election. If you go back up into the context, in verse 11, <clears throat> speaking of uh, Isaac and Esau, um, it says, <clears throat> pardon me, Isaac and Ishmael, I mean to say. No, this is, this is uh, no, Jacob and Esau, I'm sorry, Jacob and Esau. Verse 10, and not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, Jacob and Esau were in her womb as twins, you remember. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that is, personally, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calls. It was said to her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, it's entirely appropriate for God to hate Esau. God should hate us all because we're all wicked sinners. The amazing thing is not that God hated Esau. The amazing thing is that God loved Jacob because Jacob did not deserve to be loved. He should have been hated too because he was as wicked of a sinner, if not worse, than Esau. You read their life histories. But nevertheless, God chose to save Jacob 
and to bypass Esau and allow Esau to go on in his sin and receive the just recompense of his behavior. So what we have then is Paul defending the divine sovereign elective purposes of God in saving some and not others. And he says his purpose in doing that, verse 22, is that he wishes to show his wrath and to make his power known uh, upon the vessels of wrath and demonstrate his patience with much long suffering. He endured the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Now, he didn't fit them to destruction. They fitted themselves to destruction by their sin. No one who winds up in hell will ever be able to say, well, God, you put me here against my will. Uh, All of these have chosen to sin. They've chosen to rebel against God and to defy his law and his authority and thus are justly condemned. And uh, God, people say, why doesn't God save everybody without exception? He could have. You're right, he could have. And if he did, then certain of his attributes and his glory would have been left undisplayed. His wrath, his power, and his patience. Those are three specifically spoken of in verse 22. But thank God he chose to display all of his attributes, and that's why we have verse 23. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath before prepared unto glory, even us whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And so we see that God determined to display his mercy and to display his grace and his love and his kindness and his goodness. And we are the, are the, are the recipients of that, not because of anything in us, not because we're more special than those that he chose not to save. And uh, it's a constant source of, 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 of wonder and mystery that God would, would choose to save us. And uh, we just have to be filled with gratefulness and thankfulness that we are not made to show forth the glory of his, of his wrath and of his, <clears throat> of his power and his justice, but rather we were made to show forth the attributes of his glory, of, of, his, of his grace and his mercy and his love. So what's the purpose of the day of judgment? Our confession says the end or the purpose of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. So that's the purpose described for the Day of Judgment. Are there any questions? All right, we'll proceed then. Notice, secondly, not only the purpose described, but the purpose accomplished. The purpose accomplished. Now, having described what his purpose is, we see the accomplishment of his purpose. It says, for then, that is, when the Day of Judgment actually does occur... For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and glory with everlasting reward in the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ shall be cast into everlasting torments and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. So having set forth the purpose... 
he now uh, <clears throat> tells us that how this purpose is going to be accomplished. So first of all, then he talks about the disposition of the righteous. And he says uh, about them, uh, first of all, they will receive everlasting life. He says they will receive joy, glory, and reward. And he says they will enjoy the presence of the Lord. And that's the way in which God is going to manifest um, the glory of his mercy in the salvation of the elect. Now let's take that phrase apart. It says, for then shall the righteous go into everlasting life. Now let's talk about being righteous. How do people go from being sinful to being considered righteous? Okay, I'll buy that. Somebody want to clarify that or add to it? Caleb? Specifically when God declares the just in the courtroom of heaven. Okay. All right, somebody want to add to that or build on that? Does anybody know? Go ahead, Tim. I think you Good. Okay. In fact, let's read that passage together. Philippians chapter 3. And Paul says in verse 9, the last phrase of Philippians 3, 8, he says that I may win Christ. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Okay, Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. And be found in Him, that is in union with Christ, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that righteousness, which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God, by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. The fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death, if by any means I might attain it to the resurrection of the dead. So there is a righteousness which is of God. And so when our confession says, then shall the righteous go into everlasting life, the question is, is how do we get this righteousness? And, and each of the men supplied Um, a piece of the answer and that is is that first of all you can't be righteous as long as you're as you're guilty of sin so the first thing that God does to make us righteous and be able to account us righteous and declare us righteous is that all of our sins and the guilt of them is placed upon Jesus Christ but then secondly And he bears them, so we do not bear the guilt of our sin. But that doesn't make us positively righteous. That just moves us back to a state of innocence. And uh, heaven is not the, the, the abode of the innocent 
the heaven is the abode of the righteous. And so what Jesus did while he lived on the earth is he lived the perfect life of obedience to the law of God and thus acquired righteousness. And that righteousness as a gift is then imputed to us and given to us. And on the basis of the fact that we have no sins laid to our account, and on the basis of the fact that we have perfect obedience that is laid to our account, on that basis, God declares us to be righteous. And then, of course, um, because He declares us righteous, we are then justified in the eyes of God. And we're declared to be righteous, perfect, faultless before His throne. So, that's how we get this righteousness. We get it through faith in Jesus Christ where our sins and the guilt of them are imputed to Him and His perfect law-keeping is imputed to us and thus we are by God declared to be righteous. And because we're righteous, we go to everlasting life because the wages of sin is what? And if there is no sin, what do you have? life. Those who are perfectly righteous never die. And of course, Jesus would have never died (laughs) except that he uh, was made unrighteous for us. Our sins were laid to him. Um, God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so that's the reason why he died. He didn't die for his sins. He died for ours. So it says here then, it says, For um, uh, then shall the righteous go into everlasting life. And notice the connection then between righteousness and everlasting life. The only way anybody can ever have everlasting life is if they're perfectly righteous. Well, what was the problem with the Jews? They, being ignorant of God's righteousness went about to establish their own righteousness. Remember the passage in Romans chapter 10? Look at it, please. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Paul says regarding the Jews, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, that is, God's means of supplying righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, by doing all their good works. They have not submitted themselves to the righteousness that proceeds from God, that is given by God, the righteousness of God. Now notice verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law as a means for obtaining righteousness to everyone that believes. There's two ways to get righteousness. One is perfectly obey the law of God. And the other way is to believe on Christ and get righteousness from God instead of earning it by a perfect law keeping. 
And so the Jews were ignorant of the fact that God would give them righteousness as a gift. And they were going about trying to keep the law perfectly in order to earn it. <clears throat> they were going about to establish their own righteousness. And, and of course that doesn't work because no one ever keeps God's law perfectly. And of course the Jews certainly did not. Just read their history. Now notice... Verse 5, for Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law, or that proceeds from the law. Here it is. The man which does those things shall live by them. You want to have eternal life? Do you? Keep God's law perfectly. No sweat, right? Big sweat. None of us can do that. But that's one way to get it. And that's how Jesus got it. You know, we're always saying you're not saved by works, you're not saved by works, and that's true. You're not saved by your own works, but you are saved by works. You're saved by the works of Jesus Christ. He did perfectly keep the law of God. Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which does those things shall live by them. Jesus did them, and he lived by them. And that's why he can give us life, because he has a righteousness which issues forth in life to give to us. <clears throat> Verse 6, But the righteousness which is of faith, or is given to us by faith, speaks on this wise, Say not in thy heart who shall ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend in the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what says it? The word is near you, even in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Now here's how you get righteousness. Ready? Here it is. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto the obtaining of righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto the obtaining of salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on Him shall not be ashamed. So, you can either believe on Christ and have righteous given to you as a gift, or you can rush out there and try and keep the law of God perfectly and earn it yourself. But if you want everlasting life, better show up with a perfect righteousness. And of course, too late for all of us, isn't it? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And what is the glory of God? It's His perfect righteousness. It's perfect holiness. So we're going to have to get righteousness from somewhere else. And the text tells us, right here in verse 10, with the heart man believes unto the obtaining of righteousness. And what do we believe? Just anything? No, we believe in Jesus Christ. We confess the Lord Jesus Christ with our mouth and we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead for our sins and that's what saves us. So, <clears throat> it says, for then shall the righteous go into everlasting life. So God has given a righteousness and that's the good news of salvation. What we need is supplied to us by somebody else and that somebody else is Jesus. And so we look to him, as Tim well said, not having mine own righteousness, but the righteousness which is of God, the righteousness which comes by faith in Christ.
So let us believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we shall be saved. Shall we pray together? Our Father, we thank you so much for our Lord Jesus. Thank you for the gift of righteousness. Thank you that there is a righteousness apart from our law-keeping that has been manifested. The righteousness which is by means of faith in Jesus. Thank you that we are saved by his good works, by his perfect law-keeping, and that it has been placed to our account and our failure to keep the law was placed to his Thank you for this wonderful gospel. Father, we never get tired of hearing it. And we rely and rest upon it every day. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your determination to show your mercy on the vessels of mercy. Thank you, Father, that you have saved and told millions upon millions, uh, billions of people that you have determined to save. Father, we thank you for that. Help us to proclaim the good news of the message. And may through it, your elect be drawn to yourself and to faith in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.